It's NOLA History Guy podcast for Saturday, June 22nd, 2019. Welcome to the pod this week. Uh, skipped a week last week, but that's primarily because we were uh, we were out of town. Uh, was was not home, and the logistics of doing the pod sometimes in general. When uh, if I'm traveling alone, like if I'm I'm traveling for work, it's not a big deal. But of course, when the family's around, then you just get busy. You don't get that that time to put together everything, and then certainly the, the quiet time that is necessary to uh to put it together and make it happen but um but there was a good reason for that and that was mainly because we were uh, celebrating the firstborn uh my my son justin who is uh affectionately affectionately i should say known on uh on social media to everyone as lieutenant firstborn because he is indeed an 03 in the united states navy got his man well he got his master's degree last weekend and um, so uh, we went, uh, he, is, he has spent the last year, his duty for the last year was to get that master's at the uh, United States Army Command and General Staff College, which is located at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And of course, the boy being single and having discretionary income chose to live not in, in, in or near the post, but to live in, uh, in Kansas City, uh, on, well, in Kansas City, Missouri, on the, on, the, you know, on the Missouri side of the river, in a very nice apartment overlooking the river and downtown so he can hit the pubs and take the streetcar back and forth. And it's his style. It works out good. And, uh, well, he, he did it. He got a master's in military history, uh, graduated and the whole bit and now he's uh packing up his apartment to head back to uh what do they call it uh soac soac submarine officer advanced course uh he always refer to it to he refers to it as department head school because it's what uh o3s it's what lieutenants uh when they come back for their second tour their senior staff on the submarines on the boats so that basically this is training to make you a senior staff member of the of the crew and uh well it, it's great i'm just incredibly proud of him so of course we spent a few days in kansas city to you know get uh have some time off uh the the younger one by the way uh was in france he was uh he was world cupping with his girlfriend so that but uh so it was the two of us and we went to see uh see the the firstborn and uh we explored downtown Kansas City a good bit, ate at some really nice places, that whole thing. And then on the last day, on um, Monday of this past week, we went to uh, the uh, World War II, excuse me, World War I Memorial and Museum. And we're going to talk about that in our first segment. And then uh, second segment, we're going to actually, no, take that back. We're going to reverse it. First segment, we'll talk about New Orleans uh, past, and we'll do this week in New Orleans history, which we're going to talk about St. John's Eve, which is to, uh, 
which is actually Sunday the 23rd, but so we're cheating on that a little bit, but you'll see why in a little bit. And then we'll talk, uh, then we'll talk about the World War I Memorial and Museum and um, some of the comparisons that people try to make between the Kansas City World War I Museum and the New Orleans World War II Museum, and I want to discuss that a little bit uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, so sit tight, grab uh, grab a cold beverage because boy, it's it's hot. It was nicer in Kansas City, but you know, of course, it's you know, it's New Orleans in the summer. We know how that goes. So, pull up a chair and let's get started. Okay, for our first segment today, we're going to do our. Uh, uh, pick of the week from today in New Orleans history on Facebook. If you go in and search for today in New Orleans history, or if you're not a Facebook person, go to neworleanspast.com. And well, we're, we're cheating a little bit on this for for two reasons. One is because uh, just like in the last few weeks, uh, the pod is dated Saturday, but I'm doing it. I'm recording it on Sunday because Sundays are becoming a uh, you know, more peaceful time for doing this for me. Uh, but we're keeping the date, as I've said, on Saturday. So I'm kind of, you know, so it's it's Sunday the 23rd as I'm recording this. But um, I'm also cheating because I'm backing it. Uh, I'm going a day forward on the pick of the week in that we're taking uh, Campanella's entry in New Orleans, today in New Orleans entry for June 23rd. And the, her, uh, the, a piece he leads with on June for the June 23rd is an article from the New Orleans Times that's dated June 25th, 1870. Uh, and it's an interesting little two-paragraph article called The Voodoo's Day. And I'm going to read the just the two paragraphs to you because it's, it's short and sweet and makes the point uh, to a T. So it says... St. John's Day is the great day for the voodoos and is greatly celebrated in their usual style at the lake between Bayou St. John and Lakeport. A number of wooden shanties and stands have been erected there, and already last night a large exodus of men and women took place from the second and third districts uh, for the lake. Voodoo dances commenced last night at 12 o'clock, and will be kept up until tonight at 12 o'clock. Marie Laveau, Eliza Nico, Euphrasie were in their queenly glories and paid homage to them, not only by uh, by their and homage paid to them, sorry, not only by their colored subjects, but also by a numerous crowd of well-known gentlemen from the city who go out for curiosity and admiration of certain little yellow amendments to the Constitution. Wow, that's a pretty tacky statement about uh you know about the white man going out but that, it's 1870 so in context you yeah you know it's like certainly i can't imagine anybody saying something like that today so um specifically to break this down a little bit it talks about a couple of things that they first it talks about that that the uh that the folks celebrating saint john's eve are going out all the way to the lakefront. And they said between Bayou St. John and Lakeport. Now that Lakeport is a reference to uh, West End and the new canal. So that's uh, basically what's happening is if they're, if they're going up, if they were to go up the bayou, they'd take a left, right, and go east, uh, go westbound. 
they take a left and go uh, westbound over, uh, in, you know, just kind of in between there. That that, well, geez, I just did a whole bunch of uh, stuff on that for World War Two. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a, what would be the uh, now the Lake Vista and Lake Shore subdivisions out on on the lakefront. So uh, yeah, so so basically, the this is 1870, and we're getting that kind of perspective. Now it's a little interesting. Uh, you know, if you look back at some of the stuff that's written about St. John's Eve in New Orleans, uh, for example, I, I, the Smithsonian, uh, Smithsonian.com did an article that that is a little bit out there when it when because it's titled Voodoo Priestess Marie Laveau Created New Orleans Midsummer Festival. I'm not so sure that's a legitimate claim because certainly midsummer uh, celebrations and midsummer festivals have been going on for a long time before that. Uh, midsummer celebrations have a great uh, uh, a history throughout the world, uh, going back into the Greeks and the Romans in particular. But uh, certainly, you know, Europeans and such uh, obviously uh, have brought over, would have brought over Midsummer long before Marie Laveau was uh, had um, was born, much less became the voodoo queen of New Orleans. So, yeah, you know, that's a little bit cheesy, but it, it's pretty good. I'm also going to include in the show notes a uh, um, a uh, an article from 2013 from a lady named Maria Konnikova, who, uh, if you're a fan like I am of uh, Slate's The Gist, uh, Mike Pesca's daily podcast, Maria is an is an uh, a, a regular on the podcast where they do a um, they do a segment that 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 Pesca calls "Is That BS." And it's it's a thing where basically they, they you know they, they look at an issue that you know might be in pop culture or something like that, and then either uh, you know Maria does the the scientific research if you will the background research, and either they agree that it's BS or they say no there's some there's some truth to this that kind of thing. So it's a good little article going on in the background here. But the important thing to note about uh, St. John's Eve is the fact that it's 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 it's, a, it's part of the overall. Uh, conglomeration, the overall uh, the, the overall concept of su- of summer solstice festivals, and um, and and midsummer, as it were. Now, where why St. John's Eve? Well, because in particular in uh, in uh, northern Europe, and then coming over into the colonies, and of course into New Orleans, uh, all the the uh, Catholicism kind of dominates everything. So one of the things that you know we we uh, basically uh, you know common uh, common concept is uh, when be when priests moved up from the Mediterranean into Northern Europe, they had Catholic priests had run-ins, of course, with the local. Uh, with local pagan uh, groups, local pagan uh, uh, sects, and uh, and co- you know, uh, covens of witches, et cetera, et cetera, that um, basically one of the thi- one of the easiest things are the smart Catholic priests found ways to include the Catholic. Uh, include the pagan festivals into what became Catholic celebrations, and uh, you know, for example, um, for example, Mardi Gras is is an example. King's Day uh, uh, coming into Epiphany and in the start of of Carnival, and then uh, setting and fixing Fat Tuesday just before the uh, the the um, period the, the Lenten period on the uh, Catholic uh, Christian calendar. So you kind of get into that. 
it's well known in particular with voodoo that the folk practitioners of voodoo you know the afro in particular afro-caribbean practitioners of voodoo uh, would adopt or would take the loa their uh i'm to say gods because the loa are just are, are different the spirits of voodoo and would apply them to uh to catholic saints and that's basically where some of this comes from so of course saint john the the feast of saint john the baptist uh happened or takes place on the 24th of june so it makes sense to basically put bring uh voodoo into the um bring voodoo into this at that point uh it's interesting because they're um it's interesting because the Smithsonian article also, in addition to uh, citing uh, Maria Konnikova, they, they, they cite a guy from Gonola.com that you might have heard of called me. <laughs> it's a, here's a paragraph from the article. That Laveau was able to hold her celebration more publicly speaks to her role in New Orleans public life. But it was more than just a party, writes historian Edward Branley for Gonola. Uh, New Orleans voodoo, which modern scholars suggest should be spelled V-O-D-O-U, Practice revolved around priests and priestesses, Branley writes, who were community heads as well as spiritual leaders. Laveau was the most well-known, he writes. Um, yeah, you know, over, overall, she is the most well-known, but that's, that's, that's become a legend thing where the actual practice goes goes well before her and continues well after her so eh, i think they're stretching things a little bit there even though they're there even though you, you know i can't complain about the plug that i got uh, so you get kind of get the idea but anyway okay so so back to saint john's eve all right pagans have celebrated midsummer for for thousands of years so we we know that uh either you get uh you get uh direct uh astronomical observation of the summer solstice into celebrations where the Greeks would regarded midsummer as the beginning of the year or end end beginning of the year uh, in that respect so you, you, you go all the way back to that uh, fast forward through up again through uh, through pagan Europe pre-christian Europe then the Christians come into northern Europe and kind of convert things you know it's like okay well let's let's take saint john the baptist he's a big deal in the story of christ let's put his feast day on the 24th which is going to going to be smack into the uh the the solstice and then you can kind of just tie everything together with that and you know they kind of nudge it just a little bit off of the actual solstice but you kind of get the idea all right let's get to let's get to voodoo then and um uh konikova well that's not konikova on the uh, smithsonian article it's uh cat escher this goes back to 2017 by uh cat eschner I'll, I'll put the link on the show page but uh uh Kat Eschner is right that uh, we, we spell voodoo, V-O-O-D-O-O, in common practice, but really the, the, the better spelling is V-O-U-D-O-U, and, or V-O-U-D-O-U-N, voodoo. Uh, and uh, you see that in the, and I'll, I'll take the, um, the, the snippet from, uh, from Campanella on, the, um, on, on New Orleans past, and you'll see that, that uh, the 1870 article refers to the voodoo, V-O-U-D-O-U, uh, the voodoo's day, uh, and go from there. Okay, so 
So what happens in in voodoo in New Orleans is another one of these uh, situations where the pagan religion, if you want to, you know, if we want to ref- we'll refer to, let's refer to voodoo in that respect, that it, what happens is quite similar to what happens, say, in Northern Europe, where um, it was easier for Afro-Caribbean folks to play along, if you will, with the Catholics uh, that were uh, basically in charge of New Orleans, French and Spanish. Now, what I mean, and of course, what we mean by that is that you, uh, if you're referring to the Voodoo Loa, then yeah, you know the the French and the 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 the, the slave owners are going to get nervous, okay? Because enslaved Africans, you know, the last thing they want is them practicing a religion they don't understand. Now that goes from anything from uh, priests who are advocating converting everybody in 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 and around the area uh, to just common sense management of an enslaved population. So the the enslaved got the idea real quick. And so basically the Voodoo Loa become saints. For example, Papa Legba, who is one of the Voodoo spirits, becomes Saint Lazarus. And that's Lazarus as the guy who was dead and Christ raises, you know, from the dead. And and so you start seeing a lot of this where um, the 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 Voodoo practitioners start recognizing their spirits in a Christian form. So the idea of celebrating Midsummer around St. John the Baptist just dovetails perfectly with this. It fits right in. And that's sort of where this, that's where this comes from, you know, in terms of uh, celebrating where St. John's Eve becomes directly associated with voodoo and voodoo, pra- uh, the practice of voodoo in New Orleans. Because you could say, we're going out and we're going to go out to the lakefront and we're going to have a you know prayer service let's say out on the lakefront uh for saint john you know for saint john the baptist's feast day well yeah you know but the white people aren't going to go out to the lakefront to report on this as such and even if they did they would dismiss it as just you know, African mumbo jumbo, but at least they're doing it to a Catholic saint. You know that kind of thing, or the, then of course the the you know as as the the article says the uh, the uh, as the article refers to there when one starts talking about the white men that are going out. You know, who go out for curiosity and admiration of certain little yellow amendments to the Constitution. My goodness, yeah, they're talking. That's where you get into the whole mulatto and quadroon and octoroon thing where you're talking about basically light-skinned African-Americans, or what we now refer to as Creoles of color. Uh, and, uh, well, it, this is in 1870, so uh, the, there's the, the, the enslaved have been freed in that respect, but that's only five years removed. So, the, you know, the practice still went on for decades before that. And like I said, the idea is, in particular with the, you know, with the French and the Spanish, they're like, you know, if they're doing something, if, if, they, can, if they can dismiss all of this as saying it's kind of Catholic, then they'll go with that. And that's basically the idea. So, uh, so the voodoo celebrations go back a long time with this. And that's why, uh, that's why it's 
marked, you know, marked as uh, you know the, the the pick of the day, a pick of the week for us from today in New Orleans history. In terms of modern stuff, and uh, I'll you know we'll share the pictures and everything. The um, the Magnolia Bridge over Bayou St. John is the kind of the focal point this, these days of modern voodoo celebrations. Uh, a lot of folks will go, you know, dress in white and uh, women will wear uh, bandanas and some will even, you know, put on a full tignon and, and go out to the, uh, to the bayou. Uh, a picture we'll put up, just you know, incredible. The, 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 the contrast is amazing because you basically have a voodoo ceremony on the by on the magnolia bridge and cabrini high school in the background in the backdrop and so you know the it it just all kind of it's that it's like earl higgins says in the joy of yet catholicism you know everybody's got a little catholic in them even the jews well in this case if i if i you know may uh, may paraphrase earl uh, everybody's got a little catholic in them especially the voodoo (laughs) and that's kind of what what you know what's happened in that respect uh you know there are certainly legitimate uh, voodoo, pri- or well, legitimate. Yeah, there. You know, even if you 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 dabble in voodoo, you, you can arguably le- be legitimate. But there are serious voodoo practitioners who do not do it and then run to mass on Sunday. You know, they they get they they are uh, they you know they their religion is voodoo. Yeah, you know, they they do respect and honor the spirits and the loa. So you you know that's a different that's a different story. But even if you just go out to the by to the Magnolia Bridge over by you St. John on St. John's Eve and go out and you know you know get your head washed or watch people you know have you know the head washing ceremonies and all of the other prayers to the spirits. Yeah, you know, it's still a serious thing. Now, it's interesting because uh, the most of the stories about voodoo in New Orleans refer to the celebrations taking place actually on the bayou, which is why, of course, the Magnolia Bridge now becomes a focal point. But this little snippet from the Times in 1870 says that they went all the way out to the lakefront. And that kind of makes sense. Now, there's a couple of things there. Keep in mind that when they say they went out to the lakefront, the the shoreline at this point is more like where Robert E. Lee Boulevard is now. You know, the the the, the levee board neighborhoods, uh, that, that was land reclamation that wouldn't happen for another 50 years so that the 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 bayou ended basically where spanish fort is you know that's kind of the 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 mouth of the bayou and then everything else that is those those levee board subdivisions was just marshy swampy stuff so it didn't get to be solid ground really till you got past kind of where uh where Bayou St. John is, and uh, excuse me, where Robert E. Lee Boulevard is. So yeah, getting out there wasn't well. It wasn't a big deal, you know, because there were, uh, you know, there 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 were were, were roads and trails. Uh, 1870 would be a little bit ahead of the uh, the Bayou St. John uh, excursion train. But the West End excursion, uh, the West End steam train, uh, went all the way out there uh, at the time. So it wouldn't be hard to basically get out to West End in 1870 and then head, eh, you know, a little bit away from the the new canal and civilization and, you know, again, set up your your, your wooden shanties and stands and uh, and have a little celebration. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of that that's the idea. 
So that's our pick of the week this week as it's uh, the sun is kind of going down a little bit. It's not dark yet. Uh, the, 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 this year's St. John's Eve celebrations won't start for another hour or so. But uh, that's kind of, you know, we're a, a good way to leave it for, for this little bit. We'll do some serious voodoo stuff. I've, I've written some things before, and we'll, we'll, we'll do some serious voodoo. We need to get somebody on who is, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I come at it from a, from a, you know, teaching point of view. So we get somebody on who comes at it from a more spiritual point of view and address it from there. But that's our pick of the week for uh, today in New Orleans history. And uh, okay, so we'll take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we'll keep going. NOLA History Guy podcast is sponsored today by Elysian Fields Press, publishers of Dragon's Discovery, book two of the Bloodbound series by Edward Branley. Dragon's Discovery is a young adult novel that's the second, in, uh, the second edition, uh, uh, book in the story of the Bloodbound, who are basically three teenagers from Metairie who acquire a dragon's egg, and it goes from there. Can a video game become reality? David, Anne-Marie, and Joey are ready to start another school term after a laid-back summer getting to know their dragon. The difference is, they are blood-bound to Eleni of the Red Tribe, as if school, band, and drinking chicory coffee are not keeping them busy enough, they are now part of the world of the dragons. Join the trio as their days are filled with curiosity, intrigue, and a new video game, while Eleni, the guardians, companions, and merchants guide them through their discovery of life and love. Dragon's Discovery, book two of the Bloodbound series, is available uh, in paperback and in Kindle from Amazon.com, and signed copies of uh, all of Edward Brandley's books, including the Arcadia History books, the History Press Krauss book, the Hidden ta- uh, the Talents, uh, Bayou Talents books, Hidden Talents and Trusted Talents, as well as the two books in the Bloodbound series, are all uh, signed copies of all of those books are available for order for purchase at Elysian Fields Press. So that's ElysianFieldsPress.com. Elysian Fields Press, all one word, dot com. And we're back. We're going to talk a little bit about the two World War museums, uh, the World War I Memorial and Museum in Kansas City. And then we'll also talk just for a little bit about the, World, the National World War II Museum here in New Orleans. So first we'll start with the World War I Museum. Uh, we were just there. I, uh, we we uh, I visited the World War I Memorial and Museum in uh, Kansas City this past Monday because we were up, uh, again, as I said in the introduction, we were up in Kansas City to celebrate uh, the uh, uh, Lieutenant Firstborn getting his uh, his master's degree at the Army Command and General Staff College. So naturally, we did a whole bunch of stuff uh, around uh, uh, around New Orleans, uh, uh, around Kansas City, and uh, you know, messing around, have some fun, and everything else. And uh, he said, "Let's." He said, "Let's go to the." He suggested we go to the World War One Museum. Uh, on Monday because, well, obviously it wouldn't be as crowded since it wasn't the weekend. And he 
is a good move. So the the World War One Museum uh, has an it has an interesting history. It's a little bit uh, the the background on the place is a little bit different than uh, than the development or the evolution of uh, the uh, New Orleans uh, Museum, you know, which be, originally was D-Day, the D-Day Museum, and then uh, coming from the just a, you know, just uh, presenting the history of D-Day, expanding that into all of World War II. So, um, yeah, so that's a little bit different right there. But the World War I Museum kind of is, you know, definitely a... Uh, a, a, a different approach and a, and a different time, as a matter of fact. So the the idea here is that the um, basically the World War uh, the the World War One Memorial was built in 1926. Now uh, remember now the, the the involvement of the United States in World War One runs from 1917 basically to 1918. Uh, it, well, into 19, yeah, the, 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 because it was, uh, you know, it was the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, uh, uh, the boys really didn't get home till 1919 as such, you know, and shut it all down. So, um, so basically, though, uh, as soon as World War One ends, uh, Kansas City folks, knew that they would be uh that they wanted to build a memorial of some kind in their city. So they founded a group called the Liberty Memorial Association. And uh he, basically you had some, you know, the 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 big business, the well, you know, the the tycoons of the city and the you know, the well-known folks in the city put up a whole bunch of money and and go from there. Um the groundbreaking for the memorial was uh, on November 1st, 1921, and there were a whole bunch of people there. Uh, the, 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 um, the groundbreaking, the initial dedications of the uh, site and the monument and the memorial uh, coincided with the third American Legion convention ever because the American Legion was formed after World War I. And uh, Kansas City was, at the time, now remember, this is 1921. So at the time, Kansas City is a, is a logical choice for this because, there, uh, because of the railroads. Kansas City was a, was a crossroads for a number of different railroads. And, uh, and um, basically, if you're going across country, uh, it was one of the routes. You know, you'd go from Chicago or, you know, you'd go across, you know, Chicago down to Kansas City, Kansas City across to, to California, or then back the other direction. Kansas City was, you know, between Kansas City Southern and uh, the Illinois Central and other railroads, there was a lot going on in the city that way. So it was a crossroads. It was a good intersection. Uh, it, it made sense uh, for the, uh, it made sense to have an American Legion convention there. So the city decides, you know, basically right after the war ends, this is 1919, they decide they're going to start putting this together. And by 1921, they have a site, they're ready, they decide they're going to, let's break ground, let's do this. And so to do it, they, you know, basically they, uh, they invited a whole bunch of dignitaries. Uh, Calvin Coolidge at the time was vice president, uh, uh, Baron Jacques of Belgium, uh, Admiral of the Fleet, Lord Beatty of Great Britain, Armando Diaz of Italy, Marshal Foch from France, and John, uh, uh, now five-star general, general of the armies, John Pershing. So you've got all of these, these dignitaries from the war coming to Kansas City. And at the time, it was also 
uh, the, the American Legion Convention. And because this was a big thing, there were over 60 Thousand. Now think about that in terms of 1921, or shoot, even in terms of now, uh, 60,000 at a convention is a big deal. But there were 60,000 members of the American Legion there. So that's basically the, the, the idea. Um, so basically what happens then is that, the, that they break ground and dedicate on November 1st, 1921. And then by 1926, the monument itself was finished Coolidge is now president, no longer vice president. So he uh, he comes back uh, again, a whole mess of dignitaries, uh, not the same level as uh, five years earlier, but still a whole bunch of uh, of, of dignitaries there uh, come in, and the monument itself is basically a big obelisk. It's a, a uh, the, the, the architectural style, of course, is bow arts, uh, or, and also that, well, there's a, there's a sphinx, it's an obelisk. There's a lot of Egyptian revival in the area. And this is the important part uh, in terms of people who will say, oh, you, you, the, that, that's nothing compared to what we have in New Orleans. Um, that's because it starts out basically as a memorial or a monument and not a museum. And that's kind of the, that's the whole point to this, is that it uh, basically, it becomes, it's, it's a place of remembrance, not an active museum. Now, you've got this, this big obelisk that's in the middle, and on either side, you have two uh, smaller buildings that are next to it. So the the again the you know the 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 monument itself or the obelisk itself is called Liberty Tower. It's uh, 217 feet. Uh, they make a uh, kind of a you know um, a, a, of a perpetual flame you know uh, kind of thing going on uh, uh, with steam and light and, and lighting at the top kind of makes it look like it's burning but it's not a fire so it's not like a hazard or anything else so uh, essentially between the high ground that has been built up because the the monument itself is on a hill uh, lots of steps don't let if you have uh, uh, any kind of uh, access, issues or concerns with you or anybody in a group that you may be going with, don't sweat it. You just go around the back and you drive right up to the darn thing. And then there's ramps and everything else. But, you know, this is built in the 20s, okay? It was kind of 70 years before the Americans with Disability Act. So the front looks a little intimidating with the number of steps to get up to the, the you know, to the main museum level and everything else. Don't sweat it. Just drive... Look at the look at the maps. Look at the instructions and go around the back. It's not a big deal. So the tower itself and the two buildings on the side are very much Egyptian revival. Um, you know, it's an obelisk, and then there's a couple of sphinxes outside. And I'm not a big uh, architecture guy, so you know, I'll I'll put up the links and we'll you know get get it to you that way. But it's built up on this big hill, lots of steps to get up, and then this obelisk that go, you know that that that. Uh, is in the center of all of this. And that works out to be basically about 265 feet above the, uh, you know, it's like if you walk out of the Union Station, the train station across the street, the passenger terminal, then you look up and it's truly 265 uh, feet above the ground. It's 
it's lovely. Well, first off, the, the views, everything they wanted, you know, look out over the, the heartland of America and the defense of democracy and all of the, you know, all of the symbolism and the elements of this are there and, and it's, it's wonderful. The, the monument itself, the memorial itself is very moving. It's a, it's a solid, it's a solid monument. It's a solid place, you know, place of, of, uh, I don't, gosh, I hate using the term holy ground, but sacred ground, you know, uh, remembering the people who did sacrifice their lives in World War I. And, um, and, and, and it's very good at that. It's very, very effective. Fast forward to 2002-ish or so, and the monument is there. It's Kansas City's looking for, you know, what can we do to kind of boost our, uh, kind of boost our, our, our visibility here and that kind of thing. And so the decision was to, to expand, you know, the city made the, the decision to expand the monument and turn the area into a much more serious museum. Now, remember at this point, you know, in terms of 2000, 2002, the, um, the, 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 the National World War II Museum was dedicated initially, uh, you know, was 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 uh, was basically, uh, you know, working through in the, uh, the um, now the National World War II Museum uh, opens on June sixth of two thousand. So essentially, the D Day Museum, you know, the, the what, what we know now as the World War II Museum, has been open for a couple of years, and 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 and, and I'm kind of. I suspect that that's part of Kansas City's motivation to uh, up the game of the World War One monument, the World War One memorial, into a more uh, serious or a expanded museum. And so there's uh, basically they start gathering a whole bunch of stuff and start building out below the memorial, below the obelisk and the two initial buildings. They start building out a uh, a much more uh, a, a much larger museum with a very, very solid permanent collection from the war, as well as a whole bunch of, uh, you know, space for rotating uh, exhibitions and uh, lecture space and presentation areas and that kind of thing. So it's basically they, they see what, what New Orleans is up to and, and, and other locations, of course, and that modern museum concept comes in. So by 2002-ish or so, they're starting to do this, and by 2004, everything is in place. The museum itself, while not as large as the World War II Museum, is still solid. It's a good, it's, it's a good permanent collection there's all kinds of like uh there's 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 all kinds of stuff in there like you know uniforms and and munitions maps you name it there's a small french renault tank that's in uh that's in the permanent collection as well um it's interesting that the vehicles, like there's a Model T ambulance, and then there's another Model T truck that was used, you know, of, of the same style that was used by the Americans. You look at the, uh, you look at the European stuff, the French, the British, the Belgian stuff, with the exception of that little Renault tank, it's all a lot of like guns that were, well, a lot of those, those guns, frankly, were pulled still, were, were, were still horse powered in the sense of, you know, transport, transportation and movement was still done with horses. And so the 
one of the things that, that, that struck me about the collection were all of these you know, howitzers and cannons and then, of course, the, the you know, uh, personal uh, munitions and everything as well, but the lack of vehicles in that section. And then you wander, you make your way over, uh, and then there is, you know, you make your way over to when the Americans enter the war and the American contributions in the permanent collection, and now all of a sudden you've got trucks. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. But that is a ref that's an accurate reflection of the war and how things developed and how the United States' entry into the war changed everything in that respect. Uh, the Navy, naval part of the war eh, could be better. <laughs> uh, it, well, that's, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, there's not a ton of stuff there. There's, uh, there's a model of a German U-boat, which, uh, you know, it's a model. You know, then there's a, a torpedo, a replica torpedo. Um, I, given the fact that if you look at the, you know, the sinking of the Lusitania and the U-boat actions uh, as being what pushed the United States into a land war in Europe, I would have thought there'd be more about the naval side of things. But it's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's a different, it, 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 it the, the whole thing works. It's like, I don't, you know, the, it, it was very interesting in that respect. Now compare that. And, 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 the, and now here's the point to this too, is when I say compare that to what we have in New Orleans. And honestly, you just can't. And the reason why is because the National World War II Museum, which opens in 2000 as the D-Day Museum, starts out from day one as a museum. And so it's not a memorial and a monument that's expanded into a museum, but its mission from day one was to, to collect all of the stuff around D-Day. Now, why New Orleans for that? Um, basically, it, it's... Uh, well, I mean, obviously, the reason, the, the, the main reason why this was, uh, the, why the whole, um, the museum opened in New Orleans, of course, is because of the late uh, uh, St Dr. Stephen Ambrose, who was a Boyd professor of history at the University of New Orleans. Uh, it was just Ambrose's baby, right? It was his thing. He, you know, he was an Eisenhower scholar. Uh, he very much, very much studied the details and the operations uh, of Operation Overlord and the invasion of Europe. And so he was here. It made sense. But the big thing from a war, from a World War II perspective, you know, it's kind of hard to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's like, well, where would you put a D-Day museum that connects it directly to the Normandy invasion. Short of putting it in uh, right in Normandy in France, or possibly uh, along the uh, the British, the English coast, you know, the, 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 the coast of the English Channel in well, maybe one of those towns where everything was, uh, where, where, where everything was built up and, uh, the, you know, the, the, the troops were massed for the invasion, New Orleans makes a lot of sense. And the reason why is because of Higgins Industries, of course. And if you've been following the pod and everything else, you've heard, Whenever we talk about anything with World War II and New Orleans, it invariably comes back to Andrew Jackson Higgins, who is, as Eisenhower says, or was, I should say, as Eisenhower said, the man who won the war for us. And that's because of the LCVPs, the, 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 the Higgins boats, the landing craft that were used on 
uh, June 6, 1944, and then subsequently, of course, through the island hopping, uh, or not subsequently, but as well as the island hopping actions in, uh, in the Pacific, uh, troops got on land from, uh, via boats that were built in New Orleans on, on St. Charles Avenue, on City Park Avenue, along the Industrial Canal. Think about that. Now, I just did a talk, and I'm going to put, I'll put that up. I did a talk about how, um, how the lakefront contributed to World War II. And even then, it's like, you know, Higgins wasn't on the lakefront, didn't have any facilities directly on the lakefront, but he, uh, the, the Higgins Industries certainly used the lake to, uh, to do sea trials and tests of the landing craft as well as the PT boats that the company built. And, but, but here's the thing. So New Orleans makes sense. Ambrose is here. He, you know, he was one of my teachers, taught me American history. Um, <clears throat> it's, it just, it's a logical thing for a couple, you know, for those reasons to, to start this project here. Now, he's a, the, the Ambrose, in that sense, was a force of nature. He would buttonhole people and, you know, just getting the, getting, well, he didn't really, I didn't really have a lot of fight coming from the university. They thought it was a great idea. He forms the Eisenhower Institute uh, for Leadership uh, at the school, and then that becomes, or that's the impetus to uh, to uh, open and to start the D-Day Museum. So the D-Day Museum opens up, uh, or you know, basically assemble everything. They uh, build the, what is now the Louisiana Pavilion of the World War II Museum, the first original building that was the D-Day Museum, build it out, and um, the one of the big foundations, of course, of the National World War II Museum is the amount of oral history that they've gathered, because they took oral history, uh, basically um, uh, Ambrose, and then Brinkley, when uh, Brinkley worked for Ambrose, and, and then just kept going from there. The, uh, any time a vet of World War II or somebody that that wanted to tell a story from the period came to the museum. They basically parked their butt in front of a microphone. You know, it's kind of like uh, it, it's you pretty much could could say that that's you know where store where uh, NPR StoryCorp gets its ideas from as well in terms of collecting oral history. Um, they, the 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 D-Day Museum and the World War II Museum folks led the pack on this. The point being, and well, then so okay, so uh, so basically, the World War II museum, the D-Day Museum, morphs into a national museum for all of World War II, and now the campus down uh, downtown is is huge. They're even building a hotel specifically for people coming for events at the museum and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's just incredible. I guess I just, I just did a lunchbox lecture. My second one, I'd done one last year uh, after the Krauss book because the, uh, the Hymans were very, uh, were very supportive of the war effort in the forties. This year I did the thing on the lakefront there and I'll put the links up to the, the presentations uh, on the show page this week. But, and, but I'm, not ta- I'm not talking about, I'm mainly talking about this because we were just in Kansas City. Don't get me wrong. You know, as much as I'm all about promoting what, what, what we do with NOLA History Guy, this is a big deal. The important takeaway here, though, is that you really, it's, uh, it's apples and oranges to compare the Kansas City Museum for World War I with the New Orleans Museum for World War II because the World War I Museum starts out as this 
1920s Beaux-Arts sacred space. Now, you can say that by remembering the guys and the women from World War II that, that the museum creates sacred space, but it's an educational, it's a learning institution. It's a lot um, that it, its mission from day one was much more dynamic. Now, the World War I Museum is striving to do that and has done very well with it uh, on a much more limited scale. And, but when you, when you walk up the stairs or you take the little elevator out of the, main, the museum piece, the museum section, which, of course, is very nice and modern and what you would expect from you know the uh, you know from any museum uh, about you know any history uh, museum of any kind uh, and then you take that you know basically you go outside and you stand at the base of that Liberty Tower and look at the two original buildings and the statuary around them you you really have entered a much more sacred space you've entered a memorial in that sense and that's the point to this so you kind of get the idea here that you know i'm not gonna sit there and correct folks who comment and say oh that museum's nothing compared to new orleans well it, it is something it's it's a, it's a it's a more direct remembrance you know that when when the, when they broke ground for that in 1921 there was still a lot of those men that came back in 1918 1919 were still very much alive 60,000 american legion veterans standing you know at that dedication with those generals and the man who would soon be president you know that's a whole different thing from the experience of the World War II Museum, which I really enjoy and love dearly. So it's, it's, it's one of those things I'm glad we went. I'm glad we did it. Uh, it, it was fun. So that's about it. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, that, that, that kind of sums it up both ways. Uh, we'll keep talking. I've got a couple of things because you know how after you do, whenever I do a talk, sometimes you end up with uh, quest more questions and answers kind of situation. So some of the things that came out of my uh, latest talk at the World War II Museum well, it's become fodder for basically for some other stuff. So I'll put up the links to the show and you know, to the, to the, on the show page uh, to the talk to get that started. But there's a few other things about the lakefront that, you know, you end up with, uh, you know, you, you come in with your data and then you compare it with the data of other people, literally people in the audience or people who email me afterwards after watching the video. And it becomes more of a thing. So, yeah. Um, Definitely, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that as we go. And that's our show for this week. So I hope you enjoyed our, our two short segments. Uh, we, uh, as we're rolling fine now, so we'll be back and we'll catch up with you next time.